You're listening to The Fallout with Joey Semmel and Drew Gillis. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode two of The Fallout. Joey Semmel and Drew Gillis. Thrilled to bring you some sports content during your quarantine. Drew, what have you been doing to fill your sports vacancy? I've been doing what every college kid has had to do during this time, doing some yard work for the parents, getting those getting those hours in, getting that cheap pay, uh, not buying much, not going out much, so just cashing in right now while I can, riding my bike a lot for sure, uh, lifting some weights, doing what I can to stay active, but you know, not much to do. Uh, what about you? What you been up to? You know, for a while there, I wasn't really sure what to do, and then in the last week or so, I've, I've solved it. I've solved sport the sports void in it's the quarantine. It's solved. Everyone, this is solved. Listen up. I broke out my PS3, the PS3 from 2014, and put NCAA 14 in there. And let me tell you, that game way ahead of its time. <laughs> Just not even close. The amount of things you can do on there, you can make a high school recruit and put him in every single county in Virginia or Maryland or D.C. or wherever you're from. It's amazing. Or you can become a head coach of a program, do a dynasty, um, and try to recruit. And I've had a little trouble with the recruiting. I was going to say, how's your dynasty coming along? <laughs> yeah, little trouble with the recruiting. It's funny. Um, I've been losing some battles for some two stars and I'm sitting there. I'm like, are you kidding me? This two star is going to go to Georgia <laughs> Southern over my school. Are you kidding me? And I've, I've been getting a little heated at it. Um, but you know, the class took shape. We got some good upperclassmen coming in this year as well. Uh, some transfers. Um, so excited for that. That's really good news. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I know you were really worried. <laughs> so a super fun action packed episode for you guys this week. Our standout guest is Andrew Seleskar, a member of the U.S. National Swimming Team. And he's got a gold medal to his name, so we're super excited for that one. Um, but we're going to jump in first, before we get to that, with some discussion of the NFL rule changes. And we'll close today out with talk of the DH debate uh, that's rampant in the MLB right now. Yeah, this is going to be a classic shootout. AL versus NL, Yankees versus Braves. Let's get after it. I'll tell you, historically, the AL wins. Okay. So let's jump in with the rollout. This week, we will cover the NFL's proposed rule changes regarding the onside kick, and they're pretty unique, although I will say this idea has been around since around 2012 when Commissioner Goodell brought it up, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's explain the rule first. So basically, teams would have a 4th and 15 from their own 25-yard line, and then it acts as if it's a regular 4th and 15. If the team gets the first down, they'll continue from wherever that play ended. And if they don't get the first down, the other team will take over from wherever that play ended. If the offensive team commits a penalty, the play will be redone with the yardage enforced. So, for example, a false start means it will be a 4th and 20, nice, instead of a 4th and 15. Uh, and they can't, change the, they can't then change their mind and go kick it off. They have to do the 4th and 20. And if the defense commits a penalty resulting in an automatic first down, for example, a pass interference, then the offensive team will have a first and 10 after that penalty yardage is enforced. So a pass interference results in a first down. It works just like a regular fourth and 15. So Drew, any thoughts on this one? I think it's a great rule. I, th- I love the proposal. If you had asked me in 2017, I would have hated the proposal. But because of the rule changes the NFL made on the kickoff, I think it's a great rule. Uh, the rule in 2017, after the 2017 season, is that you can no longer get a running start if you're the kicking team on the kickoff, which means it's much, much harder to get an onside kick recovery. Uh, the rate from 2017 was 21.7% recovery, 
And in 2018, that went down to 7.5%. So that's a huge leap. And it, it, to me, it makes onside kicks less a part of the game, honestly. It's more of a gimmick at the end, just like a let's throw in the hat, but not officially. That's how it comes across to me at this point in the NFL. Now, as a Falcons fan, I got to see us successfully do two in one game last year, which was awesome. But I still think it's cool to propose a rule such as this. It, it creates a new risk for teams. Starting on the 25-yard line, if you throw an incomplete pass, or if you get a penalty and the you're on the 20 the yard line, the other Basically. team is – that's a field goal for them at least, easily. And that's huge. That's the difference from the Broncos' proposal of this rule. They did a slightly different one back in 2018, um, which would suggest starting on the 35. I think this added element of risk started on the 25 is going to make NFL teams actually say, this is a good proposal. It's exciting. It will get more viewership late game. But what do you think? I disagree with you. I, I don't love it. Um, the rate on 4th and 15 in the NFL last year was around 25%. It's more than double what the rate on onside kicks was, which was 11% last year. So to be frank, I don't like it. The onside kick is supposed to be hard to get. You're not supposed to get the ball back when you score a touchdown. Imagine if a basketball game, you're trailing by four. You can just say, okay, I want to take a half-court shot, and if I get it back, or if I make it, then I get the ball back. I hate that. I hate it. Uh, I don't. I don't love this rule. And for the record, this was first brought up by Goodell in 2012, and we've heard rumblings of it every year since then. Um, and the Broncos, like you mentioned, the Broncos had their proposal last year. Now the Eagles have their proposal. I'll believe it when I see it when it's implemented. I don't disagree that it's going to make the game a little more exciting. Um, but it's an unfair advantage, and I'll give you the two reasons why. If you're doing a kickoff, think about it, right? That means you just drove down on the other team's defense and scored. So that defense is tired. Now, you're going to make them come out and do an end-all, be-all, fourth and 15 play that they don't get it? That's they got to get another stop? That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not how this is supposed to work. At least with the onside kick, you get the advantage of going to the sideline for a second. You're not going to get that advantage with this. So if the other team puts a methodical 11-play, 8-minute drive, you're gassed. you got to go out there and make a do-or-die play right away. I, I, I don't love it. For the reasons you just listed, I would normally agree. The reason I think this is a cool proposal is because of all the conditions put on this rule that make actually accomplishing this 4th and 15 really difficult and really risky. The well, risk factor is huge on these because, let me finish this, because not only are you starting on the 25-yard line, so if you don't succeed, the other team is basically already in field goal range, but the penalty, if you get a penalty and you're on a 4th and 20 in the other team's red zone and you don't do anything with it, that's... that's that's a game changer. That's an absolute game changer. So I don't think you're going to see it be being used as many times as it actually is allowed to be used because teams are going to be scared of the fact, what if their left tackle messes up? What if he slips his foot? What if, what if the center's head bobs a little bit? Five yards. You have a fourth and 20, and that's your last chance? Good luck. Good luck. And that's awesome. I love putting that risk into the end of, ga end of games. Now, I get you can use this rule anytime during a game. I don't really see anyone using this, but in the fourth quarter, right? Right? Like, no one's going to Nick Saban this and do it in the first kickoff of the third quarter. I don't Sean think that's Payton. really going to happen. <laughs> we don't talk about Sean Payton on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but I love the risk. I, I think that's what makes it work. Without those risk factors, I don't think this rule proposal makes sense, which is why it didn't gain any traction last year. I will say it's interesting. 
right? It's a very interesting proposal because of all the elements you just mentioned. I mean, teams are going to have to weigh the odds, right? Do I say it's a three-point game, but you need the ball back? Are you going to give them the ball on you're, – you're going to try your onside kick so you don't get it. That gives them the ball on the 40, right? Give or take 40, 50, somewhere around there. Then if you have three timeouts and you stop them right away, you're still going to get the ball back. Only they don't get an automatic three points if you stop them. This is a part of the game that we've grown to love because it's how we grew up with the game. Having the onside kick, if it doesn't work out, the other team gets it on, let's say, the 45. Let's go in the middle, 40-50. They get it on the 45. If you have three timeouts left, you can stop them. They're out of field goal range, and they punt it away. That's something that we've grown to love to watch because it's been around. I, it sounds to me like you're just a little afraid of change. I That's, love that no, part of the no, game, no, but we no, get no, to no, see the no, three timeouts implemented no. it, it's, in it's other supposed instances to be, late game. It, it's supposed to be difficult to get the ball back. It still is. Um, I want to go back really quick to the point about the fatigued defense and how it's really, really, really not fair to them, right? So in this proposal, if the defense were to commit a pass interference penalty, it's an automatic first down and the offensive team keeps the ball. When do penalties like pass interference or defensive holding or things that are automatic first downs, when do they happen? They happen when you're tired. That's why you see the number of pass interferences go up in the fourth quarter because they happen when the defense gets tired. So I would be willing to bet that while fourth and 15, it was 25% last year, we're going to see closer to 30, 35, maybe even 40% of these work out because the defense is so tired because in order for this to need to happen, the offense has just marched down the field on them and scored. I actually hear you on this. It's, it's a good point to bring up. I still think all the pressure on this, in, in these cases, all the pressure is on the offense. The pre- you, cannot, I, you can bring up defense as being tired, but the pressure's not on the defense. I That's disagree. a game changer. No, I, I no, 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 no. The pressure's on the defense the, to make a stop on a 4th and 15, a play that which all these players who've been playing football since their childhoods are told, you're supposed to make a stop on 4th and 15. When was, the, when was the last time you saw a 4th and 15 and thought, wow, pressure's really on the defense here to make well, a stop? It's a different 4th and 15. Right. Okay. Sure. If you're you're going going for a fourth and fifteen, your back is totally against the wall. If there's any chance you're going to get the ball back, you're going to punt it away on fourth and fifteen. Right. So if you have all three timeouts late in the game, trailing by one possession, you're going to punt it away. So yes, the back will be against the wall in this situation, but it's different. It feels different because there hasn't been a three plays before it where the offense is frustrated because they're not only not going forwards, but they're literally going backwards. Just to wrap up, because we need to move on, I'll believe this proposal when I see it. It's interesting that this one is getting so much more traction than any of the talks in the past. It's very interesting because the Broncos one was just thrown out ridiculously quickly. It's these and, added risk factors. And, right. So it is interesting. I'm curious to see not only where the NFL goes with this, what the teams do with it if it were to be put in place like you mentioned. So good talk. Hey, it's Bobby. I'm back for episode two. There have been 11 onside kicks returned for touchdowns since the AFL-NFL merger. Three of the 11 have been returned by members of the Buffalo Bills, including Micah Hyde last season. So for this week's timeout, we promised you guys some Lance Doc talk. See what I did there? (laughs) So as Drew mentioned... I'm sorry, you were proud of that one. You were really (laughs) proud of that one. As Drew mentioned, this week's 30 for 30 from ESPN. They got a little series coming out 
Um, I'm excited for some of the later ones, but this one in particular is kind of the most there's there's the most news to find out, most news to most things to learn um, from this one. Kind of like the Last Dance, only this one is from Lance Armstrong, who is the Michael Jordan of cycling for a long time, especially in America. I would say this documentary could be groundbreaking from a U.S. cultural sports standpoint. I think Lance played a huge part in the future of American sports, in the future of like how Americans view pride of their sport internationally. I think he just had a huge role to play. And he, I think, said, leading up to this documentary, he has 10,000 lies that he told during the whole scandal. The scandal lasted about 10, 15 years. Might be still ongoing, really, until this doc. But there's so much we're going to find out about American sports, the culture in itself, and him. Awesome. Well, let's unpack it a little bit. Let's give some of the history. So for those who don't know, Lance Armstrong was a good cycler up until about 1999, or around there, 96. 98. Um, uh, 96, he got... He, 96, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and now we seem to know why. There's probably a link there to what we found out later, that after he won all his Tour de France's from 99 to 06, um, he was caught for taking steroids in each of those wins. And the, the big thing that we've seen in the doc is the question was, the question they asked him, was it hard to take the steroids after you were diagnosed with cancer? And in the preview, he answers no. So we're, we're going to get some insight into Lance's mind and what was going on during this whole thing. And it's going to be kind of wild, I think. One thing I want to dive into about, about the steroids in particular, it's more of a blood doping program. Uh, that's how cyclists do it. Uh, they get more red blood cells in their system, get more oxygen flowing. But I think the reason he found out about this doping program the I'm not sure if it's really a chemical or a steroid or what it is yet. I'm looking to find more out about that. But EPO, EPO is what he ended up taking, and that's what ended up basically taking over the sport of cycling. But it is a cancer treatment first and foremost, which I think is really interesting, coming from his cancer treatment in 96 into cycling at a world-class level in 98-99 with EPO. I think he realized the benefits of EPO during cancer treatment and kept getting them prescribed and prescribed at a higher and higher level. I'm looking to hear what he says from that. And, well, what I want to know is, was he taking these steroids before the cancer? Was he already taking EPO? And did he just learn about how effective it was? Or what was he taking before, if anything? And I think that's going to be one of the major pieces that comes out of this. But then it's also going to be how you treated him, how the country treated him after. I mean, as kids growing up around this time, we all remember the Livestrong bracelets. And, like, it was, (laughs) it was, it was the cool thing to do was to have one of those. And little did we know, we were supporting an athlete who had been cheating the sport for seven years, for longer than seven years, maybe. Yep. Yeah, he was a world-class cyclist before, really before the cancer treatment. As a young, young kid, we're talking ages 16 through 19, he's winning national and international stages. So this guy was good, obviously. He was one of the best cyclists already in the game at a young age. But I would love to hear, was he taking these steroids? Was he doping before the cancer treatment? And again, yeah, I'd love to hear how this just changed the sport and changed the culture around the sport and the U.S., Well, for us, I mean, we know it as cycling fans, right? I mean, the sport was huge back then when him and his team that had many other Americans on it were winning year after year after year after year. And then when this happened, it kind of tore the sport down in America. And that's why 
the the stages they're relegated to NBC Sports Network. They don't even get NBC like just NBC. They get NBC Sports Network now. Yep, and that's only for I think that might be only for the Tour de France. And there are three Grand Tours in cycling. I don't think the other two get really any no, American none, coverage. None. Uh, the day classics might be posted on NBC Sports if they're lucky. Uh, it's it's totally turned. It's totally turned the tables. I want to transition here a little bit to just talking about what ESPN is doing in this quarantine with these documentaries. They got four hours of Lance coming out after they had the 10 hours of uh, Michael Jordan and Last Dance coming out. And there's more There's more on the way. I, I, I know we're going to get a talk about um, a 30 for 30 about the 98 98- uh, race for the home runs between McGuire and Sosa and everything oh, nice, like that. Nice, um, and and a couple more very interesting topics. So they have a whole sequence of them, and I think it's genius on their part to take advantage of this when there's nothing else for people to watch. So what are they going to do on Sunday nights? They're going to watch these. It absolutely is genius for them. I mean, what else are they going to do? But they've been able to market this by releasing Last Dance first. They've been able to market their documentaries well, now as world class. And they show the commercials for the Lance thing every single commercial during the last dance. So you know it's coming. And everyone's like, hmm, this Michael Jordan thing was kind of good. Let's check out the Lance thing, <laughs> you know? Good. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure you saw this too, but one you didn't mention. They are already releasing previews for a 2021 documentary about Tom Brady. Now, that to me is going to be a little interesting because Tom Brady. In and of itself, he does not have as much of a personality as really anyone on that Bulls dynasty team. But, I mean, we're still talking 2021. They're marketing something already for then, which is probably with the greatest football player of all time. They're taking documentaries to a new level, and I'm excited to see what comes next. And what's going to be interesting, we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about the Brady thing, but what's going to be interesting about the Brady thing is people forget this guy was a backup quarterback at Michigan. He was debating quitting and playing baseball um and then he was a sixth round pick that barely made the team you know and i think that sometimes sometimes is lost when we talk about the six-time super bowl winner nine-time appearance tom brady what's funny is they have a 30 for 30 about his draft pick about how undersold he was his entire college and beginning of pro career uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how they further that in the documentary but this is so long away so long away Uh, 2021 we don't even know the month yet but yeah the lineup that they're introducing with their documentaries i think is awesome it's a great way to do it for espn great way to get some coverage we'll have the lance documentary this sunday and the sunday after and then on june 7th they have a 30 for 30 on bruce lee uh, the martial art trailblazer um so to speak and then following that they have on june 14th they have long gone summer which will talk about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and the 98 home run chase that in a lot of ways saved baseball. So get excited for all of that. Yeah. Reviving baseball is a huge topic in that one. Awesome. The highest American finisher in last year's Tour de France was Ben King, who finished 62nd overall. So today's standout athlete is swimmer Andrew Seliskar. Drew, take it away. All right, so today we have special guest Andrew Seliskar. Andrew is a former swimmer of McLean Swim and Tennis Association, my old swimming pool from my childhood. Uh, Andrew is a current member of the U.S. National Men's Swimming Team and is the 2019 NCAA Swimmer of the Year. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, first thing I got to ask is the basics. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about your journey from 
being a little kid at York Swimming Club in Northern Virginia and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, I grew up uh, in McLean, Virginia for most of my life. So I was swimming at uh, the McLean Swim and Tennis Association was the local pool. And so I kind of got my start up there and I think I was about five at the time when I first started swimming. Uh, so Drew and I were on the same team. We got to race and uh, yeah, I started swimming year round, kind of following my older brother. Swim for York Swim Club for a couple years and then Nations Capital Swim Club after that. So it was kind of those those programs that really uh, gave me a love for swimming. And by the time I got to middle school and high school, I was doing really well in swimming and decided to take it full time into college. Uh, I swam four years at University of California, Berkeley, uh, and we won the national championship last year. So it's kind of been one thing to the next, but it kind of all came from that love from love for swimming that started out in McLean. So just on that note, is there a moment where you realize like, hey, I, like, I can do this at the next level. I can do this uh, at a national level, an international level. You know, it's funny you say that. It kind of reminds me of a specific race. I think I was 16 at, I had just qualified for the Winter National Championships. And, you know, I wasn't winning the meet or anything like that. I had gotten the qualifying cut by a couple tenths, went to the meet, and I had made the B final. And I think I got second or third in the B final. But I remember swimming backstroke in the middle of a 200 IM seeing like you know people in the stands people cheering all this stuff going on and you know it was really inspiring as a I think I was a freshman in high school to be able to do that and to be able to race guys on the national team so uh, I think once I got to that level I knew I could keep pushing it and I just did from there. So going from facing up against guys on the national team and being on that scale how does it feel now how has your experience been swimming nationally for the U.S. team? Dude, it's been awesome. Um, definitely, you know, never thought I'd make it this far, to be honest. But it's a really cool feeling to kind of get the the swim cap with the American flag and your name on it. Uh, it's one of those things that I remember watching on TV when I was 10 years old. And yeah, it's an honor and a privilege. Any time that you're representing the U.S. is a great honor. So I kind of try and make the most of it, not take it for granted. And that really motivates me training every day to hold, hold that responsibility. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's, it's a privilege and yeah, I'm really happy to do it. Can you go a little deeper there? What was that moment like when you first got that cap? It's kind of funny. I think they send you like, you obviously you get the sweatsuit, you get the cap and goggles, all that stuff, but it comes in this huge box in the mail. So, uh, yeah, I was in college. I've been living in the same apartment for a couple of years now. And, uh, we have like a little hallway where the mailboxes are. So it's like, if you get a letter, it's going to be there. It's not too much stuff. And I remember one day it's like a six foot box shows up and, uh, yeah, I was sick. I mean, I got all the gear, got to, you know, at first it feels like a costume kind of thing, but it's, it's so exciting to, to have that and to be able to go to a, a competition where that and compete against guys from all over the world is is super cool um, and super intense. So I, I like that competition and um, yeah, it's, it's a ton of fun. So what in your training has allowed you to take these next steps? So in other words, what's the reason you're sitting there and Drew sitting here? Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I think I was fortunate to just get that start in McLean. Honestly, like I, I don't think I'd be swimming today if I didn't really love it. Um, I just happened to be in the neighborhood and 
that was the one local team that I felt like had the most fun or had the most passion to be in the water. I just remember wanting to spend every single day at the pool because, you know, Drew was there, a ton of guys and girls were there. Like the whole neighborhood would hang out and we'd just swim all day. So yeah, it made me love to swim. And even when it's 5 a.m. and I'm going to practice, I'm still pretty fired up to do it because it's something I, I really enjoy. Um, and that being said, I think most of my success, I think, comes from my teammates uh, at Cal. Uh, the coach here is the head Olympic coach, Dave Durden. He does the college team at Cal and then also the U.S. national team. So to be able to get recruited and to go to school here was a big opportunity because I got to train with guys that were on the Olympic team year round. So having that opportunity, uh, I kind of got my butt kicked for the first couple of years I was at Cal because, you know, you, you're still in high school, you're great. Uh, but when I got to Cal, you know, these guys are ridiculous in training. So to kind of go a couple of years learning from them, I felt like I was able to break out because of that. At the end of your college career, you eventually climbed up that ladder. You did win Swimmer of the Year. You guys won the championship in your senior year. Uh, and I'm sure the last year or so has been quite a journey for you, you know, going from being champion to Swimmer of the Year to U.S. National Men's Team. How has the last year been in your words? It's been, uh, it's been crazy to think that, you know, swimming is like my job right now. Um, I'm doing it full time professionally. And so it's kind of feels like my swimming is my own responsibility now. Um, when I was like on the high school team or college team, it was, you know, you're swimming for the team. We're trying to win the state championship. We're trying to win the NC2A championship. And now it's kind of, you know, my own career in a sense where I can push it as far as I'd like to. So yeah, it's been really interesting. And that senior year I had at Cal was really special. We had gotten second three years in a row, my freshman, sophomore, and junior year to Texas. And it sucks to be honest. I mean, those guys are incredible swimmers. Um, and to finally kind of break through as a team my senior year and win that title was really special and really gave me the fire to kind of uh, keep, keep swimming and to keep uh, trying to find competition like that because it was at a level I hadn't really swam at before to be in such a tight team race at the national championship. So yeah, it's been exciting. Uh, I'm happy with how the past year has gone, but I'm really looking forward to next year as well. So let's transition to that next year. Um, what was the feeling when you heard that this year's games and this year's trials were going to be postponed? Dude, it was tough. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously with what's going on in the world right now, there's not much you can do. It's the safe thing to do. The responsible thing to do is, you know, keep your social distance and keep everything as hygienic as possible to stop the spread of the virus. But it was definitely tough hearing that what we have been training for for years has been uh, postponed indefinitely in a sense where we don't know what the next move is going to be. So actually at the time we were the postgraduate swimmers at Cal were in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center. And within the course of like 48 hours, it went from, oh, it looks like, you know, things are going to start shutting down to, hey, we're closing down the training center. You have to fly home tomorrow to, all right, the Olympic trials and Olympic games have been postponed. Um, so it was a lot to take in, but I don't know. I, I definitely kind of see an opportunity here to get another year of training under my belt. 
And I don't know, the competitor in me kind of sees it as another layer of competition, like who can kind of navigate the situation right now and, and stay in the water and who can make it out on the other end, you know, a better athlete. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the pools kind of being shut down, telling you you got to go home in a span of 48 hours. Uh, but right now, currently, what does training look like to you? Does it mean getting in the pool every day if you can find a pool that's open? Does it just mean weightlifting on your own? Does it mean cardio work? Uh, just go a little into that. It's it's definitely been changing each week. You know, right after the Olympic postponement, everything was shut down. We weren't, we weren't in the water. Uh, where we're at right now is uh, we're really fortunate to have a couple local spots that are letting us train. And with that being said, there's a couple – like we're, we're alternating lanes. So we're not sharing lanes. We're like staying away from each other, uh, keeping it, you know, basically five people on the pool deck. It's our coach and the, the post-grad swimmers. So we're, we're really fortunate to be able to train. And then other than that, we've kind of had to get creative. Uh, a couple friends and I have kind of built like a, like a home gym set up in their backyard where we could like pump some iron and just get some lifts in when we can. And then, uh, it actually really sucked. I had to start running a little bit for a time, which I literally hadn't done in years. So like I, I went into it like, Oh, maybe I'll like, maybe we'll do like 10 miles today, 15 miles today. I did like a couple and just, I felt like my knees were going to give out. It was brutal. Um, but it's been great. I'm really happy to be still in the water because like I said, I mean, I'm swimming full time and I'm not in school. I graduated this past December. So yeah, when I wasn't swimming, it was like, all right, I'm just kind of chilling for 24 hours a day. I don't have anything to be doing schedule-wise. So, yeah, I mean, being able to swim and being able to train at a pretty high level right now is is awesome, and I'm happy with it. So let's fast forward a year from now. Hopefully there are trials. If there are, what are what's your goal? What, what events are you trying to qualify for, um, and what's your mindset going into those? Yeah, fingers crossed everything works out. Um, I'm really, I think a good thing that my coach does a lot is he's able to play things by year. And so I'm going to kind of play it by year in terms of events at Olympic trials. Uh, I swim, you know, I am in freestyle, a couple different strokes. So obviously I want to be, you know, making the Olympic team. That's, that's the goal. That's the dream. That's what I want to do. Um, and hopefully, you know, in the 200 free 200 I am events like that, I can be in a spot to do that. But yeah, I think just train as hard as I can this year. And then what I've learned to do as a professional is kind of a couple months out, begin to gauge like which of my strokes are moving well, which distances I'm really popping off in. And so, yeah, come, I don't know, March next year, I think I'll really try and hone in on those events. But right now it's just, you know, get in shape, stay in shape and, and be ready to grind it out for the next couple months. Going a little deeper into the next year coming, uh, hoping for the Tokyo Games in 2021. How would you say if your mindset has changed at all? Do you think that you have to think in terms of it not happening or you have to tell yourself it will happen in 2021? Um, just anything that your mindset might change in that way? I'm not worried about it being canceled. I think the games are going to happen, but I kind of see it as whenever I have the opportunity to race again, I'm going to be ready to race. You know, whether that's in five months, they have some national or local meets that start popping up or whether it's next summer at Olympic trials or 
the year after that, I feel like my best swimming is kind of still to come. Um, definitely the, the ability to train full time this past year out of college has been great. And I think I've made a lot of improvements. So there definitely is some frustration not to race this summer, but I kind of, yeah, I kind of just see it as an opportunity. Like whenever the pool is open again, I'm going to be there and I'm going to, you know, put my best foot forward. So if that's at Olympic trials next year, then, uh, I'll be super happy. I have one more special one that I forgot about. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. How is your band Seahorse yesterday doing? Um, it's been a long time since I've heard anything from them, you know, since the scooter song a while back, uh, any news, any quarantine hits coming out? The song scooter nation was huge back in the day around the neighborhood. Uh, no Seahorse yesterday has been on a, indefinite hiatus that was like the garage band we had back i don't know 10 years ago maybe but uh i I still play guitar i've actually uh i had another little band in college called savvy lane uh that we would play at our friend's house and uh write songs making fun of our other friends you got to tell the writers over at swim swam that you no longer are a part of seahorse yesterday and that you have a new band it is still on there (laughs) i can i we were doing our research it's still on there really dude i don't even know how they got that on there uh we we had hyped it up a lot back in the day i remember that that's good stuff man thank you so much for joining us we appreciate it a lot thank you yeah thanks so much for having me i appreciate it and uh yeah go bears Last episode, we talked about how weird this whole situation is for college athletes and many around the country, just like Dan. But I can't even imagine what it's like for swimmers who are literally aiming for 2020. I mean, that's what happens in the Olympics. It's a four-year cycle. You're building to be your best in 2020. So to hear Andrew talk about how his mindset has not only changed, maybe even improved going into 2021 is really awesome to hear. Yeah, it was really cool what he said about, you know, this is like another hurdle for him. Uh, This is another obstacle for other swimmers, and he thinks he can get over that hump, and maybe it actually gives him an advantage. I thought that was a really cool point. Uh, Great mindset for him. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about he's doing it full time. So he's focusing on just swimming, just being at his peak, whatever that is, and hopefully that means Tokyo a year from now. Andrew Salisgar comes from the D.C. area, which has also produced Olympic champions Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps. So now it's time to duke it out. This week we will be arguing. I was going to say discussing, but that's not going to be what it is. (laughs) We're going to be arguing about one of the proposed rule changes for the 2020 MLB season, which would have the designated hitter in the National League for the first time ever. And for whatever reason, this makes National League fans who are stuck in the past remarkably angry well it's an absolute disgrace to baseball let's just start there let's just kick it off right there it's an absolute disgrace to the game of baseball to america's pastime do you have a, a cloud disgrace. a cloud to go yell at <laughs> my name is joe simpson <laughs> it's a is this is a disgrace if you play baseball hit the damn ball hit the ball hit the baseball you deserve to go up to the plate and hit the baseball that's an absolute joke that's a joke you play baseball you can't swing a bat I mean, let's start there, right? You play baseball, and you can't swing a bat. Why? Because are you too afraid to step up to the plate? Is it an injury risk? Oh, no. I'm a pitcher. I deserve not to get injured. I, screw everyone else. You know, they, they don't matter as much as me. But for me, when? You know, I'm a pitcher. I can't hit. I'll get hurt. Aw. 
The fact, what? The fact of the matter is they do get hurt more often when they I don't step care. into the batter's box. I don't care. And frankly, I don't want Garrett Cole, when we just paid him $326 million, stepping into the batter's box and risking injury, doing something that he hasn't done consistently since middle school. That's the thing about a lot of these guys is they haven't done it consistently since middle school. That's not even the main point, though, right? The fact of the matter is they are so bad. So bad. There are also players in the league that hit that are also bad at hitting. Not like pitchers. Not on the same scale. If, if anyone all, it hit almost, like no, this, it almost makes it better. They would be out of the league in a day. It almost makes it better that they're worse than these guys that are just hovering around the Mendoza line. Like, I don't want to see a 190 hitter, a 200 hitter go up to the plate, swing the bat like he thinks he knows what he's doing. No, I'd rather see a Mike Fultonevich go up to the plate who looks like he's a ballerina swinging all over his heels. That's more fun to me. That's more fun. And it's a disgrace. I'm going to go back to it. It's a disgrace that pitchers in the AL are like, oh, I haven't done it in so long. I can't do it now. I mean, there are guys like you Kevin know, Kiermaier that play for the Rays. They're not here for hitting, yet they still take their bat and hit. They hit the damn ball. They step up to the plate, and they hit. Why is he in the league? Defense. But he hits. Pitchers in the league because of defense. First they of don't all, hit in the AL, and now they're not going to hit anywhere? First of all, Kevin Kiermaier is a 250 hitter. That's not amazing. It's not. But it's not like it's, incre- it's, not like it's incredibly bad like we're talking about the pitchers. You want to know pitchers hit in 2018 combined? You don't, because it's going to make you sad. It's just going to make you sad, okay? 115 batting average, 146 on base percentage, and a 150 slugging percentage. Super exciting and fun to watch, am I it right? Is. Yes, it is. And here's it's a, not. And, and here's a reason why it's exciting and fun to watch. On the Brave subreddit recently, there's a famous guy. He's actually made it pretty high into the ranks of social media accounts for the Braves. Uh, Handlit33, go check him out on Twitter or Reddit. Uh, He recently made a compilation of all the hits against the Braves that were hit by pitchers this year, or this past year, in 2019. There were so many of them. It was was ridiculous. I hated it as a fan, but it it was hilarious. There were so many of them that a Braves fan himself asked the guy, can you please make a video compilation of this? I want to see all the times that we had a pitcher get a, like a dumb hit, like a blooper against us, or a line drive. It doesn't even matter get a hit against us as a pitcher. Because it was so funny how many we gave up. And every time we gave one up to a pitcher, it's not just like, wow, really? We gave up a hit to Brock Holt? It's like, oh my gosh, we gave up a hit to the pitcher? Ah, come on. But that's a that's part of the game. It gives an energy. It gives me some excitement, even if I'm angry about it. You know what gives me excitement? What? Giancarlo Stanton hit the ball 480 feet. Cool. That gives me excitement. Cool, and he can play defense too. So he can still be in the lineup. I'm just saying... You, I mean, if you're going to pick a guy to resemble the DH role, don't pick a guy that's good at defense. Okay. You said it yourself Nelson yesterday. Cruz. Nelson Cruz. Nelson Fine. Cruz can hold his own at least in no, the field. No, he can't. Well, well enough to— I, go, go, go watch the last inning, the ninth inning of the 2011 World Series game where they're one out away, and all he needed to do was track a fly ball decently, and it went over his head. And what happened— Cardinals won the World Series. He was playing for the Rangers back I mean, then. There are different degrees of defense among all MLB players. One of your favorite players from a couple years ago, Miguel Andujar. Uh, horrendous defender. Absolutely atrocious. But the dude rakes. And he's fun to watch because he rakes. Here's the problem with that. He can't play defense. 
Therefore, he can't play baseball. He played third That's for the entire baseball. year. No. So, so here's the thing. How many here's DRS? The thing. I'm going to get an error are... call on this one, but I think it was negative 20 DRS. Right. You want to talk numbers? Let's talk numbers. Okay. Name a good hitting pitcher. Go. Zach Greinke. All right. Zach Greinke, nine homers and 600 at-bats in his career, 225 hitter, 600 OPS. Super exciting, right? It is for a pitcher. Name another one. Madison Bumgarner. 177. <laughs> best hitter, best pit- hitting pitcher in the league from last year, Michael Lorenzen. 235. 235. You said you used the Kevin Kiermeyer example. Even Kevin Kiermeyer is higher. Yeah, than I could that. have picked a lot of players that hit worse than 250. That's fair. But the point is, is these guys are bad. These guys are bad at hitting. And yes, yeah, sometimes they get into one because you just go up there, you blindly swing. Maybe you're going to make contact at some point. What are some right? of the what but are some the of the, what are some of the best videos to come out of baseball in the past you couple years? Know, Bartolo Colon hitting a home. I'm run not saying as a it's match? not exciting, but. There are so many other risks involved with it. Oh, okay. And it's, it's not just this is one. This one I hate. No, no. So I could go tell a story about Ching-Meng Wong from 2006. Hey, yeah, here we go. It ruined his career, by the way, but I won't. Instead, let's talk about what John Boy said on his Oh, let, yeah, on okay. his podcast. Yeah, let's talk about what a Yankees fan said, what an AL I, fan I just, said. But let's he, hear it. No, let's hear it. His point was the Yankees, interesting. The Yankees resemble more than any other team the love of the DH. They just gather it, all it the home run hitters they can find. The point still stands. Can I make the point before you start yelling for maybe, once? Maybe, maybe, if you're lucky. So John Boy was talking about it, and he pointed out something that I hadn't really even considered. So when you take a starting pitcher out of the game, your relief pitchers are never going to hit, right? So by your logic, they shouldn't be in the game at all, ever. No relief pitcher should ever have a job in Major League Baseball under your logic, but that's another piece. What's you, wrong you with a pinch hitter? You what? don't just... What? No, the relief pitcher. Yeah. The relief pitcher's never going to get at bat. Well, yeah, because you pinch hit for him. That's a roster spot, That's though. my point. So why does the relief pitcher get a pass when the starting pitcher doesn't? Your definition Pinch hitting work. is a part of the but, game. That, that's let a me, strategic let, move. Plugging a guy I, in the, Yes, it worked. I got you to say the word strategy. Because it's not the, strategy. Ah. And I'm quoting John Boy directly here. It's not strategy. It's worse baseball. Let me finish the point. Let me finish the point. When you take a starting pitcher out, right, you pinch hit, let's say, um, backup first baseman, right? Matt Adams, classic pinch hitter for the classic. Nationals the last couple of years, around the NL for the Cardinals. I think either stopped with the Mets, you name Braves, it. Nationals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude's He's a classic around. pinch hitter, right? So then what happens, right? He gets on base, so that means the lineup is going to flip over. Your leadoff guy gets on, your two guy gets out, your three guy ends the inning, right? So then you want to double switch, it's the fifth or sixth inning. You want a guy to cover multiple innings. So you have to double switch. So not only have you lost your starting pitcher, you've now lost your three hitter, right? Double switch. That's two. Two people out of the game. And then... Why are you double switching Matt Adams into the game? You're double switching. I didn't say Matt Adams necessarily. Okay, but why are... Uh, most you're, of the you're time, double you're switching not going to double in switch order to pinch into the, the game. Most of the time, you're not going to do that. They're it happens just going to pinch hit all the time. It happens, double switches, but it, I would double say majority happen of every the time, it's not game. happen. Okay, either way, all right. I I'm, I don't know the percentages on double switches. That's you either only way, watch the AL trash. It's not true. You know, I I watch the fucking Braves with you all trash. the time. Um, the point is, is you're not just losing your one starter. You're losing two, and then you're losing your pinch hitter as well. So you could double switch a player at that position. So now you've burned three bench people. Two starters are out of the game, and all of a sudden. Three bench guys are in. That's not fun to watch with five inning, four or five innings left, right? So that means they're all going to get at bats. So then you go around again, right? You had, all your bench guys got their at bats. 
So that's not fun. And then second, you got to pinch hit again. You got to have another bench bat come in. It's boring. It's one of my and favorite. It's one of my favorite debates in a quote, baseball game. No, hang on. Give me, John no, Boy, give me one second. Give me one I'm, second. I'm gonna finish. Let me finish my point. To quote John Boy again, because I think it's a beautifully articulated point. It's not strategy. It's just worse baseball and allowing worse baseball players to play. It's one of my favorite debates in a baseball game. The situation you actually described is one of my favorite events to watch. It is, let's let's say we're at the end of the fifth, right? And your pitcher has 80, 85 pitches. But you're in a clutch spot here. Let's say this is like in the pennant race in September. You're in a clutch spot. You need a big hit here. Pitcher spot comes up. You got runners on second and third. Let's say you're down one, down two, something like that. You want to run here. Now you're going to say, well, you shouldn't have the you pitcher You shouldn't have lineup, to make the decision. But I think it's a great you debate. You shouldn't have to make the decision. It's a great baseball debate to have in a game. Where you can where you can turn to the guy next to you and be like, oh man, what do you think? Should they take the pitcher out here? This is a risk. Like, th- let's talk about this for a second. Should we pull the pitcher? He's having a pretty good game, you know, but he's up there in pitch count. He's getting there. He's only got like one more inning. So does replacing him really hurt? Who you got on the bench? Wh- who's your bench bat? You got Matt Adams. Well, that's a pretty good bench bat. Is it against a lefty? Oh, it's against a righty. A you got to put in Matt Adams. I, I want to clarify. Hits, right, Matt Adams well. is not the classic pinch hitter. A lot of times, to use a Phillies example, it's Guys like Nick Williams, who I don't pay to go see. When, when I get to the ballpark, I'm not jumping up and saying, let's go watch Nick Williams. I'm there to, I'm there to say, let's go watch Aaron Nola. Why do I lose my Aaron Nola, uh, my opportunity to watch Aaron Nola? I just paid money for that. But unless and I got to go, um, go watch Nick Williams hit and then, I don't know. Unless you're Gabe Kapler, unless you're Gabe Kapler, just a, a trash manager, you're not going to pull a Nola you can, you can after make five the innings point with, the Braves, with 85 pitches. I'm there to watch Mike Soroka, and then I don't want to pull Mike Soroka to then come watch Shane Green, who forgot how to pitch when he got there. I'm not there to watch him come in. He actually did pretty well in the last two months that he was there. He was awful at the beginning. <laughs> awful at the beginning. So you get there, and you're there to you, you paid money to watch Mike Soroka pitch. You check the who's starting. You checked everything. You made sure I you were there for a Mike a Soroka game. pitch, right? I pay money to have a discussion of the guy well, that so, I'm watching so with going, way. oh, should we take the pitcher out here? Here's a strategic move. Let's put it this way. Let's discuss. Right? The Yankees play their interleague game. You know Garrett Cole is going to start. There are people in that crowd. And by the way, quick little side note, I hope we can have crowds at baseball games at some point again. Yeah, Just go into a baseball true, game. True. So much fun. Um, but there are people in that crowd who are there to watch Garrett Cole. Right, and if he's an AL pitcher that has to hit for dumb reasons, because the NL decides to be the only league in the entire world that asks the pitcher to hit, in the entire world they don't do it in college. You have the option to in the minors, but most people don't opt to do it. Why are we catering to a fan that only came to watch one player? Why can't we I, I, my cater? Point why is, can't we cater my point to is, the game? If, Let's cater if you're to gonna baseball. Take, if you're gonna take Garrett Cole out, right? Which We'll bring fans to the ballpark. That's all I'm saying. Then who's going to come in in the fifth inning? Because he doesn't want to hit. He can't hit. They don't want to risk injury to the guy they just paid $326 million to. The Yankees watched it happen with Ching Meng Wong, just to mention that again. So what are they going to do? They're going to either force him to hit and risk it, or they're going to take him out and bring in, I don't know, I, I guess the Yankees are... Chad Green's fun to watch. The Yankees aren't the best example. They're depth in the bullpen. You're, you're just going to disagree with me on this, but I don't care. You bring up the injury point way too much. Way it too much. All uh, it, 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 it happens all the time. It does not happen all the time. time. It does not. The main reason pitchers get taken out is not because the pitcher's going, wah, 
I'm going to get hurt. The main reason is because they can't hit as well. Sure. But it's a strategic move to decide, is it worth kind of giving up this at-bat to have him go back out on the mound? Or should I bring in a pinch hitter? It's strategy. And you wanted me to say it's strategy, but I don't know what else I would say. It's another strategic move in a baseball game, which is a game of strategy. So you cater to the game it's by not allowing strategy. for more of it. It's worse. It's baseball. it is strategy. It's so it's much absolutely worse. Strategy. So, so if I'm watching a Phillies game, I gotta go watch mediocre relief pitcher Sir Anthony Dominguez come out of the bullpen. <laughs> Right, come out of the bullpen, and then I gotta go watch Nick Williams and Adam Hazley play the field instead of Bryce Harper. And I don't know why you're pulling so many double switches. Like you're gonna pull Harper. It out happens of right all field. the like, time. Okay, the double okay, switch happens Harper, all the time. You're not gonna pull Harper out of right field because of a double switch in the sixth inning. Okay, fine. That's Reece, terrible. Use Reese Hoskins. Use Andrew McCutcheon. I don't care. Even Gene Segura, Didi Gregorius. I'm keeping the Phillies lineup. It makes no difference, right? I'd still rather watch all of those people play baseball than Adam Hazley or Nick Williams, who's coming into the game to replace them. I mean, right? you get it's late game defensive fun. replacements it's too. It's more that's different because they're not going to hit. They're not going to waste in that bat for a guy like Hoskins, a guy like Harper, a guy like Didi. You're, they're not going to waste that at bat. I'm going to close this one out by saying I like the game of baseball. Now I don't know what game you like. I, I can't not, really tell what sport you enjoy watching. If you still don't. has. What are you talking Sorry, about? Sorry, I just said, okay, I, just said okay. I wanted to so, close this so, out. I want to close let, this out let by me, saying I let, like let baseball. Let me respond to that. And baseball includes hitting and pitching, and it, baseball includes guys who have specialized in each. And it's okay not to be able to do both perfectly. Well, baseball— We wouldn't have— Oh, here's one. Baseball just stopped allowing the lefty specialists to only pitch to one batter, right? Well, that's because of the pace of play, which I think is dumb. I we think it's bo- dumb, too. We both agree it's But really let's dumb. say this. They take out specialists like that, right? They, they're taking a type of specialist out of the game. Different type of specialist. Sure, but they're taking a specialist no out of the game. That's a dumb argument. That's a really, really dumb argument. The point it's being, two entirely I still things. enjoy and then, watching and baseball. People say pace of play. Oh, so let's let pitcher hits because the game goes quicker. Average game goes quicker. Average NL game time last year was more than the AL. I'm just saying. So... I don't get that argument. I don't get the strategy argument because there's still plenty of strategy in the AL, right? So I'm not there to watch. It's just not interesting. It's not as interesting to watch the eight hitter get pitched around and then the ninth hitter, the pitcher, bunt. It's not interesting. And then watch guys like Nick Williams come into the game. It's not interesting or fun. Obviously, we're never going to agree on this issue, and that's why we brought it up today in our Duke It Out. I'm glad we brought it up. I just... We can't even agree to disagree. That's no, how far apart we are in this one. I, I want to close by saying in 1973 when this was put in, the AL fans all hated it. They thought it was so dumb. Can't right? blame them. Right? And now, why do you think every AL side argues for the DH? Because it's better baseball. Five years from now, five years from now, you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe that I once thought that watching bench bats hit was better than watching Nelson Cruz hit. If and you're, Edwin if you're listening to me hit. right now, if you've been I listening just, to me the past oh 15 gosh. minutes, no, no, no. If you've been you listening are, to me, you, you say will, that, you know that in five years, I will not be saying that, you know, that for a fact, you will be saying it. I promise because no. every AL fan sounded exactly the same. You've heard people talk about, it. you've heard my dad talk about it, right? Every AL fan has now switched over and says, it's so dumb to have one league in the entire world without the DH.
Two-time All-Star Wes Farrell, who played from 1927 to 1941, holds the all-time record for home runs as a pitcher with 38. So that's all for this episode, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We're super excited to be able to have gotten two episodes out in two days. Yes, we're a little crazy, but we did it. Bit crazy, yeah. But uh, hopefully we don't get into it like we just did with the DH. No promises. It was fun. No promises. You've been listening to The Fallout. Thanks for tuning in.